We are sponsored this week by Decode DC, the podcast that gives you an honest look into how politics affects your life. If you're a regular listener of Best of Left, you've probably already heard clips of Decode DC before and heard their great host, Jimmy Williams. He's worked in politics and as a lobbyist, so he knows his stuff inside and out, and he's taking all of that experience, and now he's explaining how things really work in Washington. Decode DC is smart, surprising, and it challenges the conventional wisdom in a way I think you'll appreciate. Like in their recent episode, about how corporations have found backdoor ways to lobby the public and the government, or the episodes where they took their listeners deep inside the two political conventions to learn what really goes on inside those mega-marketing machines the parties put on. They're part of my regular listening rotation, no kidding, and I think you'll love it too. That's Decode DC, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turk and The David Pakman Show. But first, I want to set the scene for this first clip, uh, which actually then sets the scene for the whole show, because we're talking about libertarianism today, and libertarianism needs some explaining. Now, the reason, as best as I can figure, that there is a fundamental breakdown when libertarians try to debate basically anyone else is that most libertarians tend to place a higher value on adherence to their philosophy than to the real-world results of implementing that philosophy. All of their arguments flow from the fact that they have already decided what the answer is, because they have to adhere to their philosophy, and so then they just have to contort themselves into knots to try to make reality fit into their philosophy rather than going the other way around like most normal people. It's actually very much like someone who legislates by their religion. Uh, for instance, you know, a person's religion says that premarital sex is wrong, and so they insist on implementing abstinence-only education, but that causes higher teen birth rates, higher rates of STIs, and higher rates of abortion. But they will ignore all of that data and insist that their policy is the best because they are desperate to contort reality to fit their philosophy, which almost never works unless, just by chance, your philosophy happens to fit with reality. So, arguing the finer points of libertarianism is, I think, mostly beside the point when debating anyone who believes in that fundamental requirement to adhere to libertarianism first and then figure out the best solution to any given problem second. Uh, That's what I think the crux of the problem is, and this first clip is Sam Cedar having a conversation with a caller in which he lays out the alternative perspective. Enjoy. I believe that for a government to function and for a society to function, then everyone has to agree that there will be a, uh, a, a, a government authority and um, uh, that they will have a monopoly of force. I believe that's I- inevitable. Somebody's going to have a monopoly of force um, unless you have an ongoing civil war. And in that case, then there'll be some parity. And I don't think that's a a pleasant uh, experience either. So uh, ultimately, somebody's going to have the monopoly of force. Do you not believe that that we should live in a society with a monopoly of force? I think we should try to avoid it. But uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it's possible that uh, actually you have the right answer. Maybe we should have some kind of monopoly of force. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, when it comes to having a monopoly of force, it means what can what we as uh, society allow that that monopoly force to do, right? 
Right. And I think it's better if we just, uh, we have, we go to solve problems with the mindset to minimize what we allow that monopoly force to do. Because every, the more power we give to that monopoly force, it, it seems, based on the evidence I see historically, it seems, uh, societies tend to do worse. Yeah, That's but here's the thing is I don't think that necessarily uh that all power uh is the same. Like I think it's a problem to give the government more power to surveil you, but I have no problem in giving the government more power to uh to build a uh public railway system, for instance. I think that would be a good thing. Um I think it's a problem oh. to give the the government uh, more power to summarily uh, execute people, but I think it's a good thing to give them more power to uh, deliver the mail efficiently. Um, I think it's a, it's a bad thing uh, to give them uh, the power to um, not present evidence uh, at a trial, but I think it's a good thing to give them the ability to make sure that everyone has access to health care. I, I mean, you know, I I I think it's very dangerous to just make these blanket statements without, you know, sort of connecting them to reality, because I'm not interested in living like a, a religious fundamentalist who is only going to be concerned with a pre-existing set of principles that I have that I'm going to apply to the world very rigidly because I have to have fealty to that set of principles. My the only principles I have is what works best for as many people as possible. Most libertarians, men. Or do you know women who are libertarians? We were we were talking about this uh, in our in our our, uh, our morning conference call to put together the radio show this morning, and and uh, I you know uh, Shane and or excuse me Sean and uh, Louise and and uh, Danielle, I, I, as I recall, all said they didn't know any women libertarians. Um, I don't know any women libertarians, although I think I had one on the TV show once a while ago. But uh, there's an interesting blog over at Mother Jones. This was a week or so ago by Kevin Drum. uh, In which, uh, in fact, it was a couple weeks ago. It was was in June. And he asked the question, you know, you know, why are most libertarians men? And he says, here's now keep in mind when we say libertarians, uh, let me just go back to the 1980 libertarian platform. This is, you know, there's a lot of people who say, "Oh yeah, Gary Johnson, he's the libertarian, uh, you know, Johnson and Weld. I'm going to vote for them because they're they're anti-establishment and they're they're cool guys and you know they're you know, and I don't like uh, Trump and I don't like Hillary or something, so I'm going to vote for them. Um, that's a pretty uh, 
uh, uninformed position I would submit to you. Um, just just consider this. This is from um, uh, Bernie's website, actually, sanders.senate.gov slash coke-brothers. And it's, a, uh, it's the 1980 Libertarian Party platform. And David Koch ran for vice president in 1980 on the Libertarian ticket, just like William Weld is running for vice president this year, along with Gary Johnson. Here's their platform. We urge the repeal of federal election of federal campaign finance laws and an immediate abolition of the despotic Federal Election Commission. In other words, billionaires should be able to buy anything they want with regard to elections. We favor the abolition of Medicare and Medicaid programs. Abolition. We we oppose any compulsory insurance or tax-supported plan to provide health services, including those which finance abortion services. That's sort of a sop to the the hard right. But basically, any kind of of national health care program, whether it's Obamacare, whether it's single-payer, whether it's the Children's Health Insurance Program, uh, you know, no matter what it is, we oppose it. We also favor the deregulation of the medical insurance industry. In other words, let those banksters just rip everybody off all they want. We favor the repeal of the fraudulent, virtually bankrupt, and increasingly oppressive social security system. They want to do away with social security. This is the Libertarian Party platform. If you're thinking of voting Libertarian, this is what you're voting for in Gary Johnson and William Weld. We uh, propose the abolition of the governmental post office. We oppose all personal and corporate income taxation, including capital gains taxes. We support the eventual repeal of all taxation. As an interim measure, all criminal and civil sanctions against tax evasion should be terminated immediately. Now, the Republicans have have been fairly effective at actually doing some of this stuff. I mean, they've defunded the IRS to the point that the ability of the IRS to catch tax cheats has radically diminished. We support repeal of all laws which impede the ability of any person to find employment, such as minimum wage laws. In other words, repeal the minimum wage. Don't raise it. Do away with it altogether. We advocate the complete separation of education and state. Government schools lead to the indoctrination of children and interfere with the free choice of individuals Government ownership, operation, regulation, and subsidy of schools and colleges should be ended. In other words, if you're born rich, you get educated. If you're born poor, (laughs) tough luck. We condemn compulsory education laws and call for the immediate repeal of all such laws. We support the repeal of all taxes on the income of or property of private schools, whether profit or non-profit. So... For-profit public school, for-profit schools should have tax-exempt status with regard to property taxes, even though they're for-profit. We support the abolition of the Environmental Protection Agency. Kiss your clean air and water goodbye. We support abolition of the Department of Energy. We call for the dissolution of all government agencies concerned with transportation, including the Department of Transportation. Yeah, we don't need no stinking FAA. 
We demand the return to America's railroad system to private ownership. We call for the, now get this. Let's have every billionaire own their own freeway, right? Let's take all the freeways in America and put toll booths on them and sell, sell them off to the various billionaires and just have them church. This is, this is the platform that David Koch ran for as president in 1980, as vice president in 1980. We, de- we, uh, we call, for, we call, we demand the return of America. I called it. We call for the privatization of the public roads and the national highway system. Privatize it. The road in front of your street should be owned by the richest guy on the block who happened to buy it. And if you want to drive on that road, there's a little toll gate there. You can drop your dollar into the into it or put your credit card in it and, and you know, help that guy out. Uh, the richest guy, of course. We specifically oppose laws requiring an individual to buy or sell so-called self-protection equipment, such as safety belts, airbags, or crash helmets. I mean, this is getting crazy, right? I mean, these are things that prevent all the rest of us from having to pay for the injuries and the loss of productivity of people who who aren't wearing seatbelts or don't have airbags. We advocate the abolition of the Federal Aviation Administration. Pilots, passengers, good luck, you're on your own. We advocate the abolition of the Food and Drug Administration. Oh, you think that drug actually is what it says? It might be, it might not be. It might have come from India. It might have come from somebody's backyard. Who knows? We support an end to all subsidies for childbearing built into our present laws. We oppose all government welfare relief projects and aid to poor programs. We call for privatization of the inland waterways. Yeah, all our rivers, they should be set. They should be handed over to the billionaires, too. Let's privatize our rivers, turn them into toll roads. We call for the repeal of the Occupational Health and Safety Act. We call for the abolition of the Consumer Product Safety Commission. We support the repeal of all usury laws, state usury laws. That is laws against, uh, you know, charging obscene amounts of interest, ripping you off. So that's the libertarian platform. So why are most libertarians men? Uh, Craig, uh, what's his name here? Uh, Excuse me, Kevin Drum asks. And he says, here's the quick answer. Hardcore libertarianism is a fantasy. It's a fantasy where the strongest and most self-reliant folk end end up on the top of the heap, And a fair number of the men who share that fantasy think that they are those folks. They believe they've been held back by rules and regulations designed to help the weak. And in a libertarian culture, their talents would be obvious and they'd naturally rise to positions of power and influence. Most of them are wrong, of course. In a truly libertarian culture, nearly all of them would be squashed like ants, mostly by the same people who are squashing them now, but the fantasy lives on regardless. He goes on to add, few women share this fantasy. I don't know why, and I really don't want to play amateur sociologist and guess. Perhaps it's something as simple as the plain observation. In the more libertarian past, women were subject, subjugated to men almost completely. Why would that seem like an appealing fantasy?
Wouldn't you like to live in a world where the government didn't interfere in your private life, where you paid minimal taxes and were free to do whatever you wanted to do as long as it didn't infringe on others' freedoms? Well then, you might be a libertarian. Or you might not be a libertarian, but we're going to talk about it. So libertarianism is a sexy concept right now. You might have heard about it because of third party candidate Gary Johnson, who d called Donald Trump a pussy. 3,000 mile mountain bike ride here, uh, upcoming. Um, Trump's a pussy. Or you might have heard about it from the Republican version of Bernie Sanders, Ron Paul. Or you turned into a libertarian overnight after completing Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. But what do libertarians believe in? Well, the core value of libertarianism is small government, which is a vague concept meaning pretty much whatever any individual libertarian wants it to mean. So anything from keeping the government out of your bedroom to the privatization of almost every function of government from education to the police force can fall under the libertarian agenda. So it really shouldn't be a surprise that fiscally conservative Republicans are more likely to vote libertarian than Democrats. However, on social issues, some of the libertarian policy positions are actually more progressive than an Occupy Wall Street drum circle. The libertarian stance on social issues include making prostitution legal and legalizing all drugs, even the good ones. Libertarians also believe that no military action should be taken against foreign nations unless the U.S. is attacked first. All of which sounds great to me. But what doesn't sound as great are libertarian ideals on the economic front. Libertarianism comes down to the belief that the principles that drive a free market economy can be applied to how humans govern themselves. It's this idea that an invisible hand that guides the free market will also drive human interaction with social order. This foundation is one that I disagree with because when unchecked, man motivated by self-gain will not ultimately do the right thing. This is why there are criminals, those who commit crimes even when there is a system that actively tries to prevent it. And then the whole purpose of civilization should be to ensure that everyone is fed, clothed, housed, and not to create conditions so that the few can secure a substantially greater portion of resources while others are virtually left with nothing. So in a libertarian society, who protects the unprotected? Who defends the rights of the defenseless? Even libertarians acknowledge that a free market will drive a larger wealth disparity, which some believe will be offset by the trickling down of wealth and technology. But wealth inequality paired with deregulation creates an opportunity for haves to rule over the have-nots. This is one of the many reasons for regulation, to ensure that the rich few do not impose their will unjustly or destructively on the poor multitudes. Another libertarian belief is the idea that the government should not be allowed to impose its will on the citizenry. However, in a truly free market that promotes freedom of contract and deregulation, employers have a right to force rules that would never be permitted in our current democratic systems. Libertarianism is a rich man's ideal. It ostensibly gives ultimate freedoms and choice to everyone at the cost of helping the helpless. It completely ignores the reality of economic forces, which compel the poor to take jobs they don't want to and live where they don't want to just because they have to. You can't completely deny that. You can't not see that reality. And while individual freedoms extending to property rights are in the forefront of the core principles of libertarianism, deregulation in a free market economy that will lead to an even bigger wealth gap sounds like the prologue to the movie Elysium, starring Matt Damon, or Snowpiercer, or any other dystopian future pick where classism runs rampant and the massive lower income classes rise against their small but incredibly wealthy oppressors. If you really want to understand what would happen in a libertarian society, 
Watch that movie, watch Elysium. That's a libertarian utopia where the wealth disparity is abysmal and the eroding middle class is fully shifted well below the poverty line. Yes, we will likely continue to make technological advancements that allow for like robotic arms like the ones that Matt Damon uses in that movie, but increasingly in service to a narrower and narrower segment of the population. Now you may see the poor or the underclass as weak. You may see them as the losers in this giant meritocratic experiment that is the libertarian ideal. But weak as they are, there are going to be a hell of a lot more of them than there are of you. So in the hopes of avoiding the fate of the monarchy during the French Revolution, maybe it's best to retain welfare and at least a modest social safety net, if for no other reason than to keep them from grabbing their pitchforks and turning on you. Think of it as like a, like a riot tax. In the end, libertarianism is similar to communism. I know that sounds a little crazy, but hear me out. On its face, they're both noble but impossibly ambitious theories. One has individual freedom as its core principle and the other equality. However, in practice, both concepts lead to outcomes that aren't as pure. Unlike communism, we've yet to see libertarianism crumble after application, but given the current state of the Republican Party, we may see its influence soon enough. Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. They sell high-quality razors and shaving products directly to you, which means no more hassling with the drugstores and their impenetrable razor fortresses or sky-high prices, because Dollar Shave Club is about one-third of the price of the greedy razor corporations, and they ship your order right to your door. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all of their products that right now, they're going to give you your first month for free when you join the club. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com best, pick the razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades, and that's pretty much all there is to it. If you want a first-class shave, choose their executive blade and combine it with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for the smoothest shave ever. Here's your chance to see for free why over 3 million members already love Dollar Shave Club. You'll only pay for shipping. After that, it's just a few bucks a month. No long-term commitment, no hidden fees. There's no reason not to do it, so get yours at dollarshaveclub.com best. That's dollarshaveclub.com best. This next thing, Gary Johnson went somewhere where no libertarian should, ladies and gentlemen. And they're going to let him know it at the libertarian debate. Here's Gary Johnson, among others. Uh, whole panel answers, but uh, Gary Johnson, among others, who went the wrong way with this one. Mr. Peterson. I have a feeling I know how this answer is going to be. Should someone have to have a government-issued license to drive a car? Hell no! Dr. Feldman. A car is like a gun or anything else. As long as you're using it right and not using it to hurt other people, you should have a right to use it. A license and a permit is just another way to get some money and inconvenience to people. Mr. McAfee. Pause it. Now, uh, there is an alternate theory 
about licenses that I should make you aware of at this point. That one of the reasons why you issue licenses is to make sure that someone is competent enough to drive. Because to find out after the fact that someone is not competent enough to drive um, is somewhat problematic to the property or persons uh, who had a direct um, example of that person's inability to drive. That's just one alternate theory, just so that you have it out there. McAfee. I don't think licenses are required. However, if you are uh, under 16 and your parents say you can drive and you haven't done it before, you should put a flashing pink light on your roof at least so we can get out of your way. But that at the most. Mr. Perry. The government requires licenses for, to for far too many things. The government requires licenses for people to broadcast radio. The government requires licenses to get married. They require a license to drive. What's next? Requiring a license to make toast in your own damn toaster? Absolutely not. Pause it. So, <laughs> oh damn! Wait a second. So, marriage licenses, driver's licenses. What was the other uh, license that he said? Radio license. Oh, radio licenses. The radio licenses, of course, so that uh, you can actually distribute uh, the bandwidth at certain points. Although I think you know they've opened up the low power uh, licenses uh, quite a bit, but of course you don't want two people trying to broadcast on the same frequency. Now, uh, radio licenses. I think are close to 90 years it's been in existence, probably, maybe a little bit more. Marriage licenses, I imagine, even longer than that. Driver's licenses, I would imagine, around the same amount of time, maybe a little bit longer. So this guy's slippery slope, the way it works is the government makes you get a license for, let's say, driving. And then at least 90 years later, it could be your toast. I'm in trouble. What's next? <laughs> then it would be a bathing suit license before you can swim. This is the logic of government. I'm very concerned about this. And All right, know, but wait, look, it Donald gets worse. Will be our but wait savior, a second. But wait a second. He will destroy us. It's not just that people in this audience are applauding wildly at this nonsense. <laughs> it's this. Governor? I think government has a basic responsibility to protect us against individuals, groups, corporations, foreign governments that would do us harm. In that context, a license to drive? You know, I'd like to see some competency exhibited by people before they drive. As governor of New Mexico, I vetoed a whole lot of bills. I vetoed the haircutting license. I vetoed all sorts of licensing, but license to drive? I mean, you could, uh, arguably, you could have an insurance requirement, I guess, that then the insurance company would determine. I mean, you got people that are blind that would be on the road, I think, that would actually continue to drive until they hurt somebody. I think. We're going to have jetpack for this guy. We Gentlemen, we have come to the end of the question. <laughs> Sharia law for vehicles. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Oh, my God. You know what's really upsetting to me? 
I, I just don't know how it is that the Republican primary go, uh, contenders and Democratic primary contenders seem to have skated through their primaries without having to answer that question. Because <laughs> they don't think. The media is just so easy and coddles the two major parties, not making them have to deal with the uh, question of licenses. Unbelievable. Everything is free. That's what they say. Everything I've ever done, I'm gonna give it away. Today's episode is sponsored by The Gromit, a unique online retail store that's been built from the ground up to help you consume responsibly and shop your values. They start with a focus on small businesses and independent inventors and stock their store with unique items across a variety of categories, and every weekday they introduce a new product. To help narrow down your search, they provide categories for their items like made in the USA, handcrafted, sustainable living, and for the inventors, they have categories like independent maker, underrepresented entrepreneurs, and social enterprises. I was looking through some of their more minimalist designs and appreciated that right within the promotional videos, the inventors and Gromit staff talked about the health benefits of minimalism and the wastefulness of single-use products. It's not often you find a retail outlet willing to walk that line, so if you're going to consume the way we all have to, at least to some extent, then do it thoughtfully and responsibly, and the Gromit is a good place to do just that. Visit the Gromit dot com slash left today and receive ten dollars off your first purchase of fifty dollars or more that's the gromit.com slash left and receive ten dollars off your first fifty dollar purchase they figured it out that we're gonna do it anyway even if it doesn't We have had many occasions, not so much uh, recently, although it happens occasionally, to hear from libertarians who, who call in and tell us about the, the wonders of the market and how we don't need an EPA or an FDA. These organizations just stand in the way of progress. Government is an obstacle. The free market will take care of it. And I say, but what about companies that put out products that are bad, that hurt people? And well, we've heard time and time again, over and over again, that's bad for their business. So eventually the market will take care of it. The sedative was Kevadon. And it was applied for approval from the FDA in the fall of 1960. The drug had already been sold to pregnant women in Europe to deal with morning sickness. It had been, and that was basically what we call sort of an off-label use. It had been sold originally as a sleep aid. The application seemed routine, according to the New York Times, and ready for a rubber stamp. But there was a new worker at the FDA who had just taken over the department that reviewed 
and uh, either approved or rejected requests to license new drugs. The manufacturer was the William S. Merrill Company of Cincinnati. The drug in this country was also known not just as Kevadon, the sedative, but as thamaldehyde. And Dr. Frances Oldham Kelsey, she was a former family doctor, a teacher in South Dakota, had just taken this job in FDA because her husband had just gotten another job in uh, Washington. She asked Merrill for more information. Merrill responded, and Kelsey wanted more. And then Merrill complained to Kelsey's bosses, calling her a petty bureaucrat. And this went on for about a year. And more and more evidence was gathering that thaldamide was causing thousands of horrible birth defects in Europe. And by this point, Merrill had already given out free samples to doctors in this country to try out. This is 1960, folks. This is before there was all this marketing savvy by the drug companies, but the dynamic remains the same. By 1962, the FDA had set up a branch to test and regulate new drugs, and Kelsey was put in charge of it. Later, she became the director of the agency's uh, agent's Office of Scientific Investigations. Since 1957, at this point, the company had made glowing claims about Kevadon's safety and effectiveness. It had been developed in West Germany, widely sold in Europe, as a sedative. Supposedly gave you quick sleep without a hangover. And in Europe, doctors had recently been prescribing it, uh, like I said, for morning sickness. Laws governing new drugs had been on the books for decades, but they weren't um, rigorously enforced. Approval was often routine. But Kelsey had found these, uh, the evidence for the safety to be mm, a little thin. Merrill, however, was pressuring her because it had tons of Kevin on and warehouses ready for marketing. And like I said, a thousand American doctors had already been given samples for investigational research. The company supplied more data, but also mounted a concerted campaign to pressure Kelsey. Letters, calls, visits from Merrill executives ensued. She was called fussy, stubborn, unreasonable. All words you can hear about the bureaucrats of today. Standing in the way of progress. In 1961, she read a letter in the British uh, Medical Journal from a doctor who suggested that thaldamide might be causing a numbing condition in arms and legs. She notified Merrill. The company began its own inquiry. In May, she told Merrill that the drug might affect the limbs of fetuses. The company called the evidence inconclusive. Six months later, now, late 61, European reports indicated that the drug was linked to an epidemic 
of Focomelia, a rare but uh, malformation, horrible uh, malformation of limbs in newborns. Cabinon samples given American doctors were traced, but not all were retrieved. 17 births of babies with deformities were reported in the United States, according to the FDA. Eventually, researchers learned that thalidomide crossed the placental barrier in retarded development of the fetus whose drug metabolizing enzymes are undeveloped. No one knows how many uh, babies were affected by thalidomide, but estimates range into the tens of thousands in Europe alone. Many were born without arms or legs, some with no limbs or with withered appendages protruding directly from the trunk. Some had no external ears or deformities or eyes or the esophagus or intestinal tracts. But I guess the market would have ultimately taken care of that. So, right. So she uh, passed away at uh, the age of 101 about a week ago now. And the story should not just be about Kelsey, the bureaucrat. The story is about the bureaucracy. The story is about the need for government regulation, the inability for a profit-making entity to fight its only reason for existence when that reason for existence is challenged by the safety or the health of consumers and environmental and the environment and workers. That's just the bottom line. I know I, I mispronounced thalidomide. I can never get it right. But uh, let that be uh, just one lesson of history for our young libertarian friends. Yes, I was burned, but I called it a lesson learned. of a turn, so I called it a lesson All right, uh, friends and enemies and detractors, we've got to have a conversation about libertarian presidential candidate Gary Johnson. Gary Johnson is polling really, really well among millennials. He's, he's kind of doing pretty well among Bernie Sanders supporters as well. And Gary Johnson is nearly tied with Hillary Clinton among young voters. Among voters 18 to 34 years old, Hillary Clinton's polling 31 Johnson 29 and Trump 26, according to a recent uh, Quinnipiac poll. Some of Gary Johnson's ideas at face value seem somewhat progressive or maybe at least appealing to progressives. He's mostly in favor of abortion rights. He's mostly in favor of LGBT rights. He wants to reduce the U.S. military footprint around the world. He's pro-marijuana. He wants to scale back the war on drugs. He uh, doesn't have a clearly clinically insane running mate, which is a really nice thing. I get it, right? I mean, libertarians 
have overlap with progressives, even if for different ideological reasons sometimes. The issues on which I agree with libertarians, I agree with them really, really strongly, right? A hundred percent in many ways. But aside from these issues, number one, Gary Johnson really lacks knowledge on many issues, but also his views on important issues are completely opposed to the positions of actual progressives. Not a single progressive should be voting for Gary Johnson. I'll just tell you some of these issues. Gary Johnson's tax reform plan would replace the income tax and the payroll tax with a consumption tax. A lot of times, right-wingers will call this simplifying the tax code. What it means is making it better for rich people and worse for poor and middle-income people. Back in 2012, when he ran for president, he proposed a 43% across-the-board single-year federal spending cut. Progressives are against haphazard cutting of federal spending. When you're talking about 43%, I know all about government waste. I know all about reducing defense spending and so many other areas of spending that we need to look at. But one year, cutting 43% to federal spending, any reasonable person knows that you are going to be doing some damage when you do that. Uh, Gary Johnson says he would bring the budget into balance completely through spending cuts because he has barred any tax increases. Any thinking progressive knows that that is a recipe for disaster and an impractical recipe uh, nonetheless. Uh, on the subject of student loans, Gary Johnson is totally confused. He believes the reason that college costs are so high is because of, quote, guaranteed government student loans. Misusing the term guaranteed seems not to even know what that means in the context of lending. There's some evidence that federal student lending might have slightly increased tuition, but it is very low on the list for the increases that we've seen in the in the cost of college tuition. Uh, he's publicly stated that he doesn't think the government should get involved in climate change. What progressive could possibly vote for someone who believes that? Gary Johnson supports the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He supports Citizens United because, you know, it's freedom to donate to politicians. Gary Johnson is against all forms of gun control. What progressive is against all forms of gun safety regulations? It makes no sense. Obamacare and healthcare. Gary Johnson believes, and this is, this is just disturbing. Gary Johnson believes that the free market should be involved in health insurance, period. That is maybe the most depraved possible position on the issue of healthcare. Uh, this is a disaster. Protest vote, ideological vote for Gary Johnson, forget about it. Now, what's happening? Why is he doing well with progressives? Number one, there are some uh, uh, millennial progressives that are focused on only the issues on which libertarianism is appealing, right? The issues I mentioned earlier, uh, abortion, uh, LGBT rights, etc. Number two, you could you could argue maybe it's possible that millennials don't care about the disagreements between progressive ideas and Gary Johnson's ideas because they want to sort of send a middle finger F you to the major political parties. And number three, there's also the possibility that because millennials are increasingly registered as independents, they may be sort of falling prey to this idea that, oh, I'm an independent, so therefore, I shouldn't vote for a Democrat or a Republican. I'll just pick one of these third party candidates to vote for. No matter what the reasons are, 
it is ridiculous for progressives to vote for Gary Johnson. And I, I've met a couple of them personally, and I've had a pretty good success rate in talking sense into them. Most of them had no idea about Gary Johnson's positions on TPP, student lending, healthcare, et cetera. Uh, but I can't talk to everybody. So hopefully progressives that are listening can take action on this and help out. We just heard clips today from Sam Cedar on the Majority Report laying out the argument for supporting policies that help the greatest number of people, Tom Hartman musing about why most libertarians are men, the Young Turks breaking down libertarianism and how it is similarly doomed to failure right alongside communism, the Majority Report played a clip from a libertarian presidential debate in which they amusingly debated the need for driver's licenses, Tom Hartman explained why libertarianism is basically just a scam. The Majority Report gave a case study history lesson on what happens in a libertarian society. And finally, we just heard David Pakman explain why no progressives should vote for a libertarian. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Emma from New York City. Um... I uh, really like the past few episodes. You've been doing a great job. And I just listened to the uh, uh, the episode on voting rights and gerrymandering and and such. And you talked um, about the uh, the thing you most, that made you most angry, this um, Republican who treated uh, politics like a game. And... Um, I, I was really glad you pointed that out. It's a really uh, important phenomenon to talk about, but I actually think it's it's kind of two different things. There's the thing that you talked about where uh, someone supports their candidate, and then once they've made that commitment, uh, as they get more and more sucked into the world of politics, uh, everything becomes acceptable as a means of making sure their candidate wins. Uh, but then there's the other thing. There's the the people who are in this just to win. Um, the people who are just into politics for the sake of winning. Um, I think a good example of that is our current Chief Justice, Robert. He, um, uh, the things that he's doing now as Chief Justice. Um, looking at voting rights, for example, but also uh, things like the Federal Arbitration Act rulings um, are things he's been working on his entire career. He's been working on for decades. And I think the scariest thing actually about this election, uh, for me at least, uh, was the vice presidential debates and seeing that Mike Pence is of this type. He's the guy who has very clear, very meticulously crafted politics for the purpose of winning, uh, for the purpose of achieving power um, and achieving everything uh, that he wants, regardless of what it takes to get there. So it's just always, I think, to, to see which 
which dealing with fit into this category where they only have that goal in mind and to uh, strategize accordingly. Thanks, Jed. Hello, Jay, and everyone at Best of the Left. This is Paul from Minnesota and or Wisconsin. I have an activist call to action. I heard your recent activism segment about starting up action groups with Democracy at Work, an organization headed by Dr. Richard Wolf and dedicated to furthering the growth of cooperative worker self-directed enterprises in this country. This is a subject I am very keen on, and I checked and found out that there is no group here in Minneapolis-St. Paul. So I decided to start one. I am pleased to announce that the inaugural meeting of the Democracy at Work Twin Cities Action Group will be held at 7 p.m. on Thursday, October 20th. The meeting will be at 4200 Cedar Avenue South in Minneapolis. So, if you live in or around the Twin Cities in Minnesota or Wisconsin and would like to get together and start eating capitalism out from the inside, come and join us. For more information, please contact us through our Facebook group, Democracy at Work-Twin Cities, or email us at Democracy at Work-Twin Cities at googlegroups.com. Again, the inaugural meeting of the Democracy at Work Twin Cities Action Group will be held at 7 p.m. on Thursday, October 20th at 4200 Cedar Avenue South in Minneapolis. And contact us at Democracy at Work Twin Cities on Facebook. And our email address is Democracy at Work Twin Cities, that's all one word, at googlegroups.com. Thank you, and stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I am not even close to done talking about libertarianism, and I even have more clips for you. I'm going to do a little tag team action. I have a couple more clips from Sam Cedar on the Majority Report in which he is debating libertarians. Uh, Sam is great at this. It's like a hobby of his. Within his show, he regularly has uh, libertarian callers and then they have on like professional libertarians and he debates them endlessly. So he's real good at it and he has a very specific strategy. His strategy is the one that makes sense for someone who cares about policy and actually figuring out what we should do in the world, which is to apply libertarian logic to real-world scenarios and demonstrate how they break down. Now, I'm going to tag team a little bit because as I was preparing today's show, I heard these two exchanges, and Sam, because of his strategy, sort of let these exchanges go by without addressing them. And, you know, then he dove into his, let's, let's talk about how your philosophy, uh, you know, deals with a real world issue. And what I'm going to do is explain why the foundational uh, philosophies that these two different people lay out don't even hold up on their own. You don't even have to get into the details because we can demonstrate how, uh, how, how they break down just when these people sort of describe uh, their philosophy. So uh, let's hear this first clip. 
This is Daryl Perry being interviewed and uh, and Sam basically just asked him to define libertarianism and I'll break it down after. It would it be okay if I asked you like what is your definition of a libertarian? Yes, so my definition of a libertarian is someone who abides by libertarian philosophy. And libertarian philosophy is based on the principle of non-aggression, personal responsibility, and self-ownership. So uh, you know, I think we will both agree that I do not have a legitimate right to the fruits of your labor. And you don't have a legitimate right to claim any of the fruits of my labor. And that should apply across the board to everyone. I can't just go to my next door neighbor's house and demand that he give me stuff. If me and the rest of the neighbors decide to vote to go take stuff from one of the people in the neighborhood, that doesn't make it right either. And if we decide to call ourselves a government, then it still does not make it right to just go take stuff from people. Because again, I don't have the right to take their stuff. I can't delegate a right that I don't have to anyone else or to a group of people. And libertarians believe that no one has a legitimate right to initiate force for political or social goals. Taking stuff from somebody because you think you can do something better with it is either a political or social goal, depending on how you go about taking their stuff. So that is the basis for what is a libertarian. And then everything else just comes from the principle of non-aggression, self-ownership, and personal responsibility. Okay, now that definition was more or less reasonable compared to uh, other definitions and descriptions of libertarianism that I've heard. I know that essentially every libertarian on the planet likes to have a slightly different definition that they abide by, but that was pretty middle-of-the-road standard stuff about the non-aggression principle and so forth. And I don't think that he exactly committed a logical fallacy in that definition, but he came really close, essentially by skipping over a really important part. And I may be reading into it a little bit, but I feel like, by listening to him, that he he defines libertarianism in a way that he feels like he has proved beyond any reasonable doubt that his, the, you know, the core of his philosophy is completely unassailable. You know, the step A leads to step B, and if I can't take your stuff and you can't take my stuff, then a group of people also can't do that, and B leads to C, and C leads to D, and ta-da, I have proven that libertarian philosophy is unassailable, and I have already won every debate anyone wants to have with me on the subject because I have just proven it. That's how I interpret what he said. The problem is he, he's, he you know, obfuscates a little bit, but mostly he just leaves out a giant chunk. Uh, so in his proof, there's actually a giant gaping hole uh, because he is attempting to prove something that is a moral construct. He has decided, and many people like him have decided, that it is immoral to go against the non-aggression principle and he defines it in such a way that it appears that he's right. However, he's, first of all, he, he frames it as though a group of people are like ganging up on him to take his stuff, which is not how government works. It's, governments 
aren't actually allowed to pass laws that only affect a single person or a single entity. You know, they, they pass universal laws, so they affect everyone. So no one's coming to get your stuff. The government has decided collectively to come get everyone's stuff. That's how, you know, collective action works. This is a principle that a lot of libertarians fundamentally disagree with, but that's how it works. Now, now what he's leaving out is that non-aggression principle is not the only way to construct a moral view of government. The other way is not that complicated and it is not a new concept at all. It's actually the cornerstone of our entire country and essentially all democratically run countries, which is that the legitimacy of the government comes from the consent of the governed. You've probably heard words like that in some similar construction before. As I said, it's a fundamental building block of democracy. So when he describes a group of people who decide to call themselves the government and says it is still not legitimate for them to come take his stuff, what he is forgetting is that we have already had this debate We have already gone through a massive process over hundreds of years and millions of people deciding that government actually can do that morally because they receive their legitimacy through the consent of the governed. That's us. So he leaves that part out. If he he included that and just said, libertarians don't believe that governments are legitimate even though the majority of the governed give their consent, if they say that and they recognize, hey, we just don't believe in democracy, then I think that would be more honest. I think if he were to expand his definition to include all of the relevant parts, then it would have to include that, and then it would be seen as totally rationally consistent. Now, part of the reason why I think he doesn't even understand that there's an alternate morality to his non-aggression principle, the consent of the governed, he doesn't even understand that that exists because that interview ended in a epically spectacular way in which he got very angry at Sam sort of trying to poke holes in his libertarianism and ultimately asked Sam, do you think that I should be put in prison for not paying taxes? And Sam says, well, you know, ultimately, yes, because Sam, like most Americans, believes in legitimacy through the consent of the governed and the government can levy taxes and there has to be a penalty for not paying your taxes. And so ultimately, yeah, prison is the is the you know final uh, result of that. And the guy says, OK, great. I'm glad you said that you're a horrible, despicable person. And he hung up the phone. So clearly he doesn't even know that there's an alternate moral framework that a person like Sam or 90% of the country may be working from. Okay, one more clip for you. Uh, This one, I think, actually is a logical fallacy, and I want to tear it to pieces. So let's hear this. What I'm trying to get to is that you're making a proposal that we don't have a taxation system because you find it morally wrong. Now, I don't want to argue about morals. I'm not sure why that's morally wrong. Uh, But but, but, Wait, hold on, could, hold on. But the throwing someone in jail, let's hold on. So let's just let me just push you on that for a second. So you just kind of agreed with me on my, my principle about the Iraq war. Right. So you said you're telling me if someone stands up and they say, I speak out against the Iraq war. And not only do I speak out about against the Iraq war, but I am not going to send my money into Washington to contribute to mass murder. And we're going to take that guy and throw him in a cage. And you don't see the moral issue there. 
I actually think that that's civil disobedience, and I think that you have to be prepared to go to prison. Hold on. Uh, okay, situation. I'm sorry. Yes. So you're saying if it's a moral issue, you cannot pay your taxes, and then that's civil disobedience? Yeah, if you, do, if you choose not to pay your taxes, uh, then you can expect to go to jail. Yes. Yes, and if a slave ran away from a plantation, he could expect to be brought back to the plantation, but that doesn't make it moral. I'm just arguing that you can't acknowledge that that's wrong. Now, I just realized that I didn't quite get the full context of this, because before this exchange started, I mean, I already cut this down for time, but before this started, it began because the libertarian on the line was making the claim that taxation as a system was immoral, just across the board immoral. And to back up that claim, that's when he brought in the concept of taxation going to pay for immoral, immoral wars and various things like that. So the logical fallacy he's committed here is equating taxation, the concept, with taxation, how it is implemented in this country right now, and where that money goes. So, Sam, I don't blame him because to do it in the moment, you know, on the phone with the guy, it would be nearly impossible to unwind that logical fallacy because as you just heard, he starts equating taxation, the concept, with slavery, the concept. Slavery, something we should immediately acknowledge, is immoral on its face as a concept. Taxation, he is using things like our money going to immoral things as a justification for calling the entire concept of taxation immoral, but there are plenty of countries who have taxation systems that do not then go and spend that money on immoral foreign wars, just as, a, for instance, to compare with the example he gave. So he's committed this unbelievably wild logical fallacy by trying to say that taxation, the system is immoral by definition because of how that money is spent. And Sam, in the middle, he's trying to unwind that, saying, no, I, I disagree with the way some money is spent, but I don't disagree with taxation as a system. And they could never quite figure that out about each other. Again, talking at cross-purposes, uh, because the libertarian is coming at it from this very strange perspective where his philosophy defines taxation as aggression, and then he has to twist himself into a knot to say that taxation is equivalent to war or is equivalent to slavery. It's, it's, he's just so far off the mark, it's sort of, I'm a little embarrassed for him. So those were just the last two I wanted to make sure to tack on here at the end. Uh, you know, as I say, Sam does an excellent job debating these guys, but he can't possibly refute every moment of insanity in, you know, in the flow of conversation. And, and these two moments were, were just, uh, they stuck out to me. And I thought I, I really just need to hop in the ring and, uh, you know, hit the guy with a chair from behind. So that is going to be it for today. I want to thank again The Gromit for sponsoring today's episode. The Gromit is an online shop where you can shop your values, search for items that are built for sustainable living, designed to last a lifetime, and more. The way the economist Juliet Score puts it, we don't need to care less about the things we own in order to save the world. We need to care more about them by choosing to own things that really add value to our lives and that are made to last. So shop thoughtfully and consume responsibly at 
at the Gromit and get $10 off your first $50 purchase when you type in thegromit.com slash left. That's $10 off your first $50 purchase at thegromit.com slash left. Keep the comments coming in as always. The number again, 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past.